Let's turn to Romans 8. In Romans chapter 8, we are seeing Paul's reasoning for why a Christian should persist in the midst of life's trials. While there should be a continuance, even though hardship is cleaning your clock. No one said that living for Jesus is easy. But it's through those times of weakness that we find that his power is perfected in us. If you're here today and you think, well, I'm a nobody, there's nothing that God can ever do with me, you're wrong. Because you hold a blessed location that you did not earn. And it was earned for you on a cross 2,000 years ago. If you've believed in Jesus Christ, you now have a location that is called in Christ. And because of what is true of Jesus Christ and all that he died to secure for us and all that he lives to provide for us, he provides those things freely by his grace to every single person that has believed. Now there will come a time as the Holy Spirit leads us along that we become more and more embracing of this new life in Christ. No one born again is immediately mature. It just doesn't happen that way. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of fight. There's a lot of learning. There's a lot of care that needs to happen. There's a lot that the father wants to do in leading his children to maturity. And in doing so, we find that as we recognize that the truth just isn't true, it's true. And what they're telling me in the world is wrong because the truth has told me better. And what they're telling me on the news is wrong because the truth has taught me better. And because what some fool is telling me, if I would just donate with my credit card and send in my bill so they could burn it up on the altar and they'll never be there again, except that credit card bill that I just did from donating to your ministry, you recognize that they're wrong. That only the word of God is true. And as we come to a greater realization of that, when it affects your life, you find that the world begins to rail against you. Because the world hates Jesus. We must understand this. The world hates your Savior. So times are going to get hard. And this is where Paul gives us such encouragement as the sufferings of this present age are not even worth being compared to the glory that is going to be revealed to you. That when you find yourself in a hardship and not even knowing how to begin praying to the Lord because you're so overwhelmed, don't freak out. The Holy Spirit is at the plate and he is batting a thousand for you because he knows the will of God. And we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And let me state this because sometimes it seems controversial. Not every Christian loves the Lord. They're believers in Christ, but because they have not taken the time to develop the fellowship with him and to lean into him in life's situations, that love relationship is not developed to where it needs to be. God wants to lead us on that path. Those who are getting persecuted for the faith, usually, 
have one major thing in common. When they have that humble attitude and they're taking their licks, it's because they have a heart, they have a love for God. Well, God has promised to work all things for the good of that situation. What is his purpose? The adoption of sons. His grand purpose is to bring about a glorification that is so mind-blowing that we can't even begin to talk about it now. In fact, Paul got a glimpse of this and was given a thorn in the flesh so that he wouldn't brag in talking about what he knew. He saw an inkling of it, and that's what drove him to give his life for the preaching of the gospel and to remain steadfast in upholding God's word. And so Paul wants to prove this to us again, and he says in chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, those whom he knew beforehand, he was previously acquainted with. He predestined. Predestined for what? Predestined is a destination that God has set up for us to arrive at. What is the destination? Well, look what it says. He predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Notice they weren't predestined to go to heaven when they die. We have got to get rid of that thinking. It is not biblical. You cannot find it in the scriptures. But what we do find is that the sanctification of the believer and being conformed to the image of Christ that leads to a great glorification, that's what God has predestined for those who have responded in faith to the gospel message. It says here, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, so that those who are being conformed to his image would be exalting Christ as the preeminent one, and that would have a rollover effect on the believers around them. He is the one, she is the one, who is holding their cup underneath the fountain of grace. And because it is becoming so filled, it overflows so that the people's cups around them can have something to drink. In other words, it's encouraging and edifying the body forward. It says here, verse 30, And to those whom he predestined, he called. And we talked about this last week. In other words, if the goal, if the destination is for you to be conformed to the image of Christ, then God is going to call you to something in your life that sets you on the path to see that be a reality. It may be that you're being called to be a pastor or a teacher in the church. It may be that you're called to be a plumber. It doesn't matter. The question is, what has God called me to? And I need to be faithful in what he's called me to and making sure that I am sharing the gospel and edifying the body of Christ with the gospel so that they are built up. There is nothing else left to do, guys. I know you're probably so sick of hearing me say this. Evangelism and discipleship, that's it, and we need to do it well. Now, I'm a little humbled right now because my belly just flipped my page in my Bible. <laughs> Teach me to lean into it. Sue today was like, you've lost some weight. I'm here to tell you no. <clears throat> so we've all been called to something. It says here, and those whom he called, he also justified. Now this messes a lot of people up. And here's the reason why. They say, well, justified, there it is. 
That's when you hear the gospel and you respond in belief and you're declared righteous before God. So he's not talking about in the past how he's worked with people, predestining them to be conformed to the image of Christ and giving them a calling to fulfill in their life, showing a previous track record of faithfulness in order to encourage the believers. Now, he actually went back and all of a sudden wanted to start talking about how God set up a process of salvation in verses 29 and 30. I tell you, no. Here's a reason why. If you got your little paper here with your notes, you can write your notes from your handout. If you need one, let me know. I think we've got a few copies nestled under here. Anybody need a copy of this paper? Maybe you got one handout. You want one to write notes on? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. Just making sure. Give everybody an ample chance. Let's talk about the word here, justified. We can bring that up. Now, I'm going to butcher this. Pastor Steve and Mary Cooper can correct me. Dikai uo is how you say this word, okay? And it means justified. And there are four major definitions that are given, and I've highlighted one in order to make you understand that there is a well-rounded meaning that comes from this of which it can be used. Notice the first one, to take up the legal cause or to show justice or to do justice or to take up a cause of something. Number two is to render a favorable verdict. In other words, you've been vindicated in a situation. Number three says to cause someone to be released from personal or institutional claims that are no longer to be considered pertinent or valid. You've been made free. You've been justified from that burden or been made pure. And the fourth one is to demonstrate to be morally right. You've been proved to be right. You've been justified by your behavior or your behavioral choices. Now, you say, I don't have enough time to write all this down. That's okay. It's going to be on the website later. Not a big deal. But under the second definition, I want you to see something interesting. Because under the second one, they realize we've got a lot more to say about this and how the scripture uses the word than what might be readily available. So, It says there underneath two, notice the italics portion that's underlined. I just want to make sure that you got it. By, on the basis of works or by what one does. So in other words, there's been a favorable verdict that has been rendered your direction because of works that you have done. You've been vindicated by your deeds. Does that make sense? Now, I say that because we're going to safeguard a major point here. When we normally talk about the word justified and justification, we talk about it from a Romans 3 perspective. And I believe that that's totally fine where it's at and following the flow of what Paul wants us to know. But here, that's not what he's talking about. Normally, we would talk about the word justified as you've been declared righteous before God, or in other words, because you've responded to the gospel in faith, God now sees you through the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been put in a possession, sorry, not possession, position of complete acceptance before him, and due to that, there is no blame on your stead anymore because Christ is now what God sees you through. Does that make sense? So we would say, I have been saved. 
That's completely right. You could easily say in that way, I have been justified. I've been declared righteous by the Father, not because of my works, nothing to do with what I've brought to the situation. It's all based on the merits of Christ and what he has accomplished is sufficient. Now I'm going to say this and this might get in your crawl and that's okay because I believe it to be true. Anybody here have a crawl? So make sure I <laughs> got your attention. Okay. There are no works that are necessary for your positional justification before the Lord except the work of Christ. And that's it. And once that happens, justification is an instantaneous event. It happens in a blink. And it is done. And so the argument often comes, well, if they're really saved, we're going to see works. If we're really saved, they're going to show it. Show it to who? You? Who made you a judge? Let me see your fruit inspector badge. Why are we so quick to whip out the magnifying glass in order to check whether or not other people are redeemed? If they say they're a Christian, treat them like a Christian. Two things are going to happen. They'll either get saved, because they're not, or they'll get discipled, because they are. But we're not in the position to judge the eternal destiny of anybody. But we cannot afford to corrupt justification by faith alone. And alone means alone. It means by itself. And we've hammered this in this series. And so what I'm getting ready to show you is not a corruption of justification by faith alone because of the merits of Christ alone. Is everybody with me? There are no works that validate your salvation. There are no works that you can do to be saved. Whoever believes in Christ is given eternal life done. His promise is certain. God does not lie to you. And that's a done deal. Now the question is, how are you going to walk? Now, in order for us to wonder, what does it mean to be called to something, and all of a sudden, those whom he calls, he justifies? What does that mean? What does that look like? Let me show you. Everybody take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. For those of you that have set in on studies where we've gone over James before, I apologize that you're going to be hearing it for possibly a third time. When I first got here and was learning more about the split that took place in this church about six or so years ago, James chapter 2 was one of the main focuses of why that split happened. And the reason is, is because it was mishandled and it was misinterpreted and context was completely neglected and works salvation was introduced into this body. And there had to be extreme surgical measures in order to remove that cancer. Let me be clear. Works salvation is a cancer on the body of Christ. Because now it becomes about your performance, and you become the focus, and it takes everyone's eyes and heart off of what Jesus has done for you. And so there is no toleration for that in this church at all. None. So we went through that on a Sunday night series, verse by verse through this book. 
Then when COVID happened, because I already had a lot of that material prepared, people were wanting to do something more. And so we had studies online through Google Hangouts where people could dial into that. And I'm down in my basement feeling like I'm hunkered in a bunker. And we're going verse by verse through James, and we dealt with that. And so I want to draw your attention to this, number one, so that we will correctly interpret this passage. Number two, so we will understand what in the world does Paul mean by justified if he's not using it the same way that he used it back when he talked about how people come to faith in Christ. One thing I want to point out to you is if you just look in your Bibles, if you let's say you were looking at James chapter one, let's just look there real quick. And if you notice in verse two, consider it all joy, my brethren. Do you call lost people brethren? No, you, you probably don't. How about look at verse nine? But the brother of humble circumstances, anybody call lost people brother? How about verse 16? Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. We don't call lost people beloved brethren. Verse 19, same thing. This you know, my beloved brethren. Move over to chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren. Chapter 2, verse 5. My beloved brethren. Anybody know who this book is written to? Believers. Which means they're already justified, yes? Okay. If you just get that straight, and you read the book, how he's unfolding it, because he's writing to the brethren and the cistern, they're in there too. Is that even a word? Not cistern, cistern. Okay, the cistern. (laughs) He's writing to believers in Christ. And now I'm going to read quickly so that we get context running into this so that we can see it, okay? So we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 1, and here is the issue going on. Number one, the book starts, you're going to experience trials, count it joy. Why? Because God's doing something to grow you. God wants to grow the body of Christ, and trials and conflict with the world is the testing about how this normally comes about. God is doing a work. So stick with it, respond favorably. Hold fast to sound doctrine. And he's giving some instances where churches could easily fail the test. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. In other words, it's almost like, let me put my feet upon you because that's what you're worth. Now watch what it says. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Is that what happens? Here's what he's saying. There's to be no favoritism in the church. You're not to prefer one person over another. We are to be indiscriminate as far as people are concerned. You come in dressed nice, great. You come in dressed poorly, great. Embrace your brothers and sisters in Christ and stop caring about how they came. Glorify God that they came. Everybody got that? So now you become very much in trouble. You become judges. We have no place being judges. And you've got evil motives. He calls favoritism evil. 
Look what it says here. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And And the answer is, yeah, he did. Why? Because those who have nothing are rich in Christ. And they show us something about Jesus that those who are well off have a hard time seeing. Peter, I tell you the truth. It is difficult for a rich man to enter, to enter richly into the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier if you tried to take a camel and squeeze him through the eye of a needle. Now, did Jesus have a sense of humor or what? But let me tell you how hard it is. Why? Because when you have riches, you seldom need the Lord. That's why humility is important. So he says here, verse 6, but you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Notice that. In James's time, he's saying, it seems like that anything that the rich have wanted to do in relation to the body of Christ has hurt you. So why would you entertain that? Why would you fall all over yourself in order to exalt this person and neglect the one whom you know that God is supplying all of their needs. It makes no sense. Now, here's a point we need to get at, verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, is that the law of Moses? No. Christians have died to the law of Moses. We are not obligated to keep the law of Moses in any way. You post the Ten Commandments in your yard, that's great. I'd like to know why. But if you do it, fantastic. It's not going to hurt you. It's the word of God. Yes. But I am not held to the law and neither of you. Why? Because Christ is the end of law for righteousness to every single person who believes. Period. So we are not obligated to keep those anymore. And in fact, truth be told, they weren't given to us. They were given to Israel. So let's make sure that we have a proper perspective. The law was never given even to Israel as a means of gaining acceptance with them. It was a way of cultivating fellowship with him. So now it's talking about this royal law. How, If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. What is the royal law? Loving your neighbor as yourself. Are you living according to the Christ principle of love? If you are, thumbs up. He says here, Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all of it. It's a chain. You break one link, the chain is useless. You can't tow nothing. N-U-T-H-I-N apostrophe. Verse 11, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, which is a good thing, but you do commit murder, which is a bad thing, you've become a transgressor of the law. Now, why is he bringing that? Because he wants to show you the seriousness of sin. And if he's telling you, if you show favoritism in this situation, you've transgressed, and any transgression is a serious sin. You don't have to worry about, well, I did this, but I didn't do that. 
No, it's not little checklists here that we're dealing with. You did one, you broke it all. Let's stop trying to justify ourselves. Showing favoritism is evil. So now verse 12 and 13, pay attention to this. Remember, saved audience, yes? Yes? Okay, there we go. So speak what comes out of your mouth, and so act how you move forward and engage with other people as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Now let me stop for just a second. I thought if you believed in Christ, you wouldn't be judged. No, if you believe in Christ, you're not going to be condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, every Christian will be judged. This judgment does not deal anything with heaven and hell matters. That is decided today on earth, depending on whether or not you've responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith. If you have not, then the lake of fire is your destiny. You are condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the Son of God. But if you have responded in faith and have been transported into this in Christ location where you are freely accepted before the Father, the question now becomes, what are you going to do with this new faith that you have? What are you going to do with this new life that you've been freely given? How are you going to invest it? How are you going to be different? How are you going to treat people differently? How are you going to handle your finances differently? How is it going to influence your view on politics? How is it going to decide what you do for retirement? Or in other words, how does Jesus matter now that he's your all in all? Now, to each one of us has been given opportunity. And with that opportunity comes the grace, the love, the power that we need from the indwelling Holy Spirit to meet everything that God has ever called us to. Remember, his design is not just to redeem you, but to bring you into a conformity to the image of his son. He's got great and grand things. It's one thing to buy the whittling block. It's another thing to sit down with the knife and fashion it. And that's what God is doing with every believer in their life, in different ways, having some commonality, yes, love, unity, part of the body of Christ. Jesus Christ is our pinnacle, of course. Holy Spirit indwelling all of us, wanting to do those things, that's what helps us meet that call. It's not of works that we do. That's not just coming to faith in Christ. That's living the Christ life. It's Christ's life, not mine. So I need to get hands in pockets and out of the way and watch for him to work, or to say it this way, this is the way that Lewis Sperry Chafer described it. If you love God, do whatever you want, because everything else flows out of that one main thing that needs to be central. Now, being at the rapture, and when all the church from everywhere is gathered together in that time, that will be the time of what is known as the judgment seat of Christ, or the Bema, B-E-M-A, if you want to write that down. And the scriptures talk repeatedly about this point for Christians. And we will be judged based on what we have done while in the body, whether it is good or whether it is evil. We are personally responsible for how we steward 
what we have received. This is why Sunday morning at 9 o'clock is not a joke. It's not attending church. It's not, I guess I got to go. This is us investigating God's word and singing praises to his name because when you walk through those doors out into the parking lot, life is to be different. Why? Because we're more knowledgeable of his word. We're more understanding of him. And we are to proposition ourselves differently in light of what we know. We're to have an increased fear of the Lord because that's the beginning of knowledge. So notice, we will be judged by the law of liberty. Now, this judgment is not, well, you didn't do so well in your Christian life. I don't think heaven wants you right now. Why don't you take that escalator that goes down? Well, that's not the situation. But here's one thing that we find. For those that are faithful, they will receive riches, crowns, robes, positions of authority, a stone with a name written on it that no one else knows. And all of these picture a payback, a recompense. The word causes it, calls it mistas. It's the idea of payment for work done. Because you've invested your Christian life into this and said, I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to obey the word. I'm looking to be receptive to every bit of truth that I get so that I can live for his name because I'm so grateful for what he's done for me. God wants to reward that at the judgment seat of Christ. And there will be those believers that have much because they humbled themselves and they obeyed. There'll be a lot of believers there who won't have anything to show for it except eternal life, and that's it. For more on that, you can see 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. So he's talking to believers about their judgment. You will be judged according to the law of liberty. Now, seeing what we saw before in the royal law and seeing that there's love that's connected to that, watch how this moves forward. Verse 13, four, here's our causal conjunction. It's going to explain what just happened. Judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs or boasts against judgment. Now, in the situation of a rich person and a poor person who comes in the congregation, notice that right here he is culminating this in an argument for us to treat each other mercifully. Would you agree? Yes? Because look what it says there. Judgment will be merciless on the one who shows no mercy. If you treat the poor like trash, you can guarantee that your time before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be one where he shows you no mercy. Why? Because you saw no reason to show mercy to others. And so he will judge you harshly. And that's the Lord's prerogative. He can do that. But if you show mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. And now we move into the landmine of the church. Verse 14. What use is it, my brethren? Stop. Saved or unsaved? Saved. If someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? Now stop. Save him from what? What? The judgment, the ill judgment, being judged without mercy at the judgment seat of Christ. This is not talking about 
go to heaven when you die. And this is repeatedly how it is explained. He's writing to believers. They've already been justified. If you don't believe in eternal security, you don't believe in the Bible, period. So these believers are already locked up and ready to go. But the question is, are they living harshly or mercifully to people? Notice that it says here, verse 14, what use is it? That word actually means benefit or profit. Is it beneficial for you, for anybody? If someone says he has faith but has no works? And the answer is no. I can have the most orthodox creed in the world. Here's a copy of our mission statement, or our, our, our doctrinal beliefs. We go over it at our meeting. Every time we have a meeting, we go over a couple of these entries. We have these printed up so people will know. This doesn't mean squat as far as benefiting people if it never takes root here and manifests itself here. So the answer to James's question is, no, it can't save them. Why? Because you can be the most orthodox biblical Christian in the world, but if it's not coming through and how you treat one another, especially people that are different from you in the body of Christ, it will not save you from a harsh judgment. You will be judged harshly. Does everybody see how contextually that makes perfect sense with what James is saying? Okay, you may have heard this differently. And I'm not trying to be boisterous or anything. But if you've heard that works are necessary for you to go to heaven when you die, they have lied and sold you a works righteousness. And anybody that is trusting in a works righteousness is not saved, period. I will go ahead and draw that line in the sand. Christ saves us. We don't do anything but need saving, period. But that's not the issue. The issue here is. How do you live? How are you benefiting the body of Christ? When a rich man and a poor man, come, poor man comes in, how do you respond? How do you act? How do you treat them? Now, to clear this up, he wants to give us an example. If a brother or sister, verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, oh, you need clothes and food? Well, go in peace, be warmed, be filled. And you do not give them what is necessary for the body. Same word. What use? What benefit? What profit is that? Did that help them at all? No. Well, you don't understand, Pastor. I believe the word. I would tell you that if you don't have works manifesting, out of a love to build up the body of Christ, you don't believe the word. The word is completely against lordship justification. Thinking somehow that we've got to lay down all this junk in order for Jesus to save us, or we better act a certain way, or we're not really saved. No, 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 no. But there's a lot that the Father wants to do in leading us in sanctification, and I do believe in a lordship sanctification, recognizing that Jesus Christ is Lord over every area of my life because his word is authoritative. And so we have got to get those distinctions straight. And because we're talking about believers here, we know how to properly think about it. So the next time somebody comes in need and you have to, what's the most biblical thing I could do? If they're hungry, feed them. 
If they need clothes, you've got some on. Take them off and give them to them. But then I won't have any clothes. You can go shirtless for the obedience of Christ. That sounds probably way more risky than what I thought about. That's going to be repeated digitally for all of time. Does everybody see how you can profit, you can benefit the body of Christ by simply determining what the needs are in the body and supplying for them? Okay. Saving us from a merciless judgment at the Bema. It says here, verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Notice it doesn't say that faith, having no works, is not really faith. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say faith, if you have no works, is disingenuous, just disingenuous faith. It's not sincere faith. It's not true faith. Well, you only have a head faith, but you don't have a heart faith. Whoever came up with that was reading too many chick tracks. Some of you know what I'm talking about there. But that's not biblical. If I go outside and I have Zach pop his hood and I take the battery out of his car, does it cease to be a car? No, it's still a car. Is it benefiting or profiting anybody? No, and that's the problem. Works are what energize the faith of the church, and those works must be done in faith. Does everybody see how that works? <laughs> okay. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Being by itself. Verse 18, but someone may well say, now stop, let me give you the technical Jeopardy word for this. This is called an imaginary interlocutor, okay? And what this is, is somebody who wants to bring an objection, an imaginary interlocutor. Both of them start with I, you're okay. And what this is, is somebody who wants to raise an objection. And this is what the authors of Scripture often did because they couldn't just text message back and forth with the church. You guys doing okay? Okay. okay? That's good to hear. No, they weren't doing that. It was, as I'm writing this, let me introduce an imaginary person who might raise some objections that the people receiving this letter might also have so that I can answer them effectively. That's the idea. So here's what he says. Let's read through this. But someone may well say, and I don't have time to get into all the punctuation here, but understand there's a lot of people that jack up the punctuation here. And let me go ahead and give it to you. May well say, comma, there's the beginning of your quotation marks, and the quotations do not stop until the end of verse 19. I know the New American Standard has them at the end of 18. That is a translator's choice. And the way that we know that is because if you look at verse 20, but are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow? Stop. Who's the foolish fellow? The objectioner. Does everybody see that? James is now going to respond to that imaginary objection in the situation. So verse 18, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. And we all said, what? Now hold on to that, because we're going to break it down simply here. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Now stop. Close quotation, 
That's the argument that this imaginary objector is bringing, and now James is going to answer. And here's what he says, verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless, that it's lazy, that it's idle? And that's James's point. Don't you recognize that in order for your faith to be beneficial to people, you need to have works with it because it energizes and it brings benefit and profit to people. Now, what in the world was going on in 1819? What objection was this bringing? Everybody pull out your little half sheet with your silhouettes. And if you notice on the right-hand side, we've got James, the well-versed author. But on the left-hand side, we got some guy named George, the lazy objector. And so George is going to be the guy who objects to this. And I tried to break this down in language that we could understand and give you the verse references so you can see how they connect, okay? Now watch this. I disagree that faith without works is dead. Faith and works do not need to be connected. This is what lazy George is trying to communicate. You don't need to have faith and and works connected in any way. It's It's not important. Here's what he says. You, James, have faith, and I, George, have works. Show me what you believe without your works. Can you do that? Hey, I believe this. Can you see that? Can you observe that? Is that something that you can write down and say, he said he believed this. Do you re- can you prove that? No, you can't. You can't at all. So notice, show me what you believe without your works. You cannot do it. Now I will show you my faith by my works. Is that possible? Well, he's doing good things. He must be a believer in Christ. Warren Buffett does good things. Good grief, Jimmy Buffett does good things. I don't know if either one of them are believers in Christ. Bill Gates does bad things. And they look like good things. I don't think he's a believer in Christ. I know a lot of moral atheists. They believe in Christ? No. This is one of the biggest reasons why we can't judge people according to their salvation. Because works are not a successful litmus test to see what only God can see or the regeneration that's been done in the heart. Only God can see that. So George's argument is faith and works don't have to be connected at all in any way whatsoever because if you tell me what you believe, you don't have to show it, just whatever. And if I try to do works, you can't sit there and determine what I believe. Even a Buddhist would help somebody. The Buddhist is going to the lake of fire. They don't have eternal life. What's that? Pride is a great motivator. Let's be honest. One of our greatest Achilles heels is that we help other people, not for the glory of God, because it makes us feel good. We're not worried about how it shines light on him. We're just concerned about if it shines a little bit of light on us. And what we find is, is that's not a good indicator either way. And this is what the objector is trying to get at. You want to talk about faith? You can't tell it from your works. You want to do a lot of works? I can't tell anything about your faith. So see, they're not related, nor do they need to be. So he says here, there's no connection. Second paragraph. Let me give you another example that proves that there is no necessary connection between faith and works. You believe that there's one God. Now, real quick, verse 19, you believe that God is one. It's called monotheism. You believe there's one God. Now, watch this. You do well. In other words, that's your response. James, because you believe that there's one God, you go out and you do good things. That's the motivator that causes you to do good things. But here's the problem. Demons believe in one God. 
but their response is to shudder. Now, this particular verse has been used by myriads of preachers to say, well, what you have isn't real faith, it's demon faith. Stop for a second. Raise your hand if you believe that Jesus Christ died for demons. He didn't, did he? He died for the sins of the world, and that's not demons. So this whole argument about demon faith is stupid, period. Notice, the demons have the same information, exercise faith, they believe it, and their response is to cower in fear. So you got both of them believing the same thing, and you got two different results. There's no connection here. James, look at your right-hand side. Faith without works is dead, meaning that it's not beneficial or profitable to anyone. Mere words cannot clothe or feed a brother or sister. Our faith must be practical and beneficial, not just theological. You are a fool for claiming that faith and works have no connection, George, and I will prove it to you. Now, how does he prove it? He gives you two examples. Look over at your Bible at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father, mark this, justified by what? Works. Hold it. I thought Abraham was justified by faith. Was he justified by faith? He was, Genesis 15, 6. You need to know that. James is pulling off of two Old Testament examples to show you this ain't nothing new. This is a way that God has always worked and the way that he's always worked in developing people. Look what he says here. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Yes. What chapter of the Bible did that happen in? Do we know? Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Verse 22. You see that faith, which was already present, was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And here's what's interesting about this Greek word that's used here for perfected. It's the idea of complete or was brought to a maturity. It's the idea of someone who, because they didn't just believe God, but trusted him in such a way as to where they're turning over crazy things in their life to his guidance and advice and are believing that, are walking forward in that way. And it's affecting how they live and the decisions that they make in their life. All of a sudden you find that he is being conformed to the image of Christ. He's being perfected. Does everybody see that? Yes? Notice it says, verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, back in Genesis 15, 6. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now notice James's argument at the last paragraph he has. Abraham grew to be a righteous man who lived out his faith. He showed this to others by offering up his son Isaac years after he had believed in the promise of God. Faith and works were working together to mature Abraham's faith, making it grow. So you see, and here is the key point I want you to understand. There is a second kind of justification where Abraham grew unto practical righteousness. He did not simply stay at faith alone status. He grew. Look at verse 21 again. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac? Yes, 
he was in Genesis 22, and that happened years after he first believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, 6. You say, okay, what's the point that you're getting at here? The point I'm getting at is that the justification, those whom he called, he also justified, is not talking about go to heaven when you die justification. It's talking about you being conformed and being challenged to trust God beyond what you can understand so that you will be conformed into the image of Christ and be complete, mature, growing. That's the point. Now, the other example that's given is Rahab. You can read that on your own. But let's talk a little bit more about the Abraham situation and close this. Take your Bible and turn over to Hebrews 11. This is actually where we're going to be next week, but I want to show you this. Hebrews chapter 11. This, if you're familiar with this, this is the hall of what? Faith. Some of us know that. Because anything that would be pleasing to God is done so with a full conviction about what he has said. It's believing beyond circumstances. It's believing beyond worldly advice. It's believing beyond what your horoscope's going to tell you or even what Nancy Drew decided to write out. Is that her? Dear Nancy? Dear Ann? What is that woman's name? I don't read her. Ah, you guys know because you read it. There you go. Good job. (laughs) Hebrews 11. Watch verse 17. To me, this gives us the perfect example And it is one of the most mind-blowing three verses that I've ever seen in the Bible. You ready? Because he's talking about you and me type people. Abraham was just a guy like you and me. God had a plan for his life, called him to fulfill this plan. As he grew in obedience, he was conformed to the image of Christ. And we saw from James, he was justified by his works at a certain moment in time when he made the decision to offer up his son Isaac at God's request. There was something going on there behind the scenes that is absolutely mind-shattering. Look at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was what? Stop. What was God doing? He was testing Abraham. Because God didn't know, I don't know if Abraham's going to score an A or an F on this. Let's get him. No? All the purposes of God are good. God wants to take Abraham somewhere where few people go, where few Christians go. It says here, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he, pay attention, who had received the promises, was offering up his only begotten son. Now, two interesting things here. What about Ishmael? Ishmael was the child of the flesh. He wasn't the child of promise. He was not the one that God said, through your descendants, I'm going to bring this about through your seed. I'm going to give you a child, even though you're 100 years old. And they, he is going to have children. And they are going to bring about the blessing for the world in the form of the Messiah. Abraham had received these promises. Or let's say it this way. God told him what was true. Kind of like he does with this every time we open it. God told him the truth of the matter. And now Abraham's got a decision to make. I've waited for this child for forever. It is my child and Sarah's child. And God finally answered our prayers and brought this child. And on this child contains great promise. 
And now I'm being asked to sacrifice my child to God, the one who gave him to me. And I've got a choice. I can either not sacrifice the child and deal with the consequences of disobeying God. And that might be where you're leaning. Or I can sacrifice my child and my child is gone. And there's no more child. And I have to live with that heartache and grief for the rest of my life. And maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're saying, well, I have to trust God in this situation, but I don't like what's coming out of this. Some of us say, how could God ask for something like this? Because God is doing something greater than our minds are grasping a hold of. Verse 18, it was he to whom it was said. Now watch this, because here is the promise that rests upon Isaac. In Isaac, in Isaac, in that boy that you're raising the knife over, your descendants shall be called. Abraham, if you want to know where the rest of your progeny is going to come from, it's going to come from that one kid. And here he is with the knife over the child. I'll do it because God asked me to, but there's something else going on. Verse 19, mark this verse. It's incredible. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. You might say, what does that mean? It means that when Abraham was coming to the altar to sacrifice Isaac, there was no conflict of interest. Where we might sit on the outside and we would struggle with, okay, wait a second. I don't sacrifice my child. I disobey God. I got to deal with the ramifications of that. I sacrifice my child. I lose my child. And I deal with the grief and the heartache of that. What we're finding out from the writer of Hebrews is none of those options were on the table because Abraham knew that God always fulfills his word. And if the promise rested on Isaac, then he could sacrifice his son without any problem whatsoever, and God would raise him from the dead in order for him to still have children. God made a promise, and God's word doesn't fail. How was Abraham justified by works? He was justified by works because when everything that his eyes and his mind and his heart was telling him, his conscience was in the background going, trust God's word no matter what. Trust him beyond what you understand. Trust him beyond what you see. Today we have the slightest bit of inconvenience. And the word becomes like sand in our fingers. No. God has spoken. God has given us 66 books to say, this is who I am, this is how I work, and this is what I've promised. And I will never do anything or allow anything to happen that is apart from what I've told you in my word, ever. It will never happen. If it did, we couldn't trust God. God would cease to be God. In fact, isn't one of the greatest markers of God is the fact that when everybody else is messing you over, God doesn't? Don't tell me you don't know what that feels like. So what does it talk about we were called? We're called to a purpose, predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And here's the interesting thing. 
God wants to make sure that happens in every one of our lives. And so what he's going to do in that calling is he is looking for the opportunity to justify us, to vindicate us by our works, by something that we have done and saying, you know what, I trust God so much. I believe his word without compromise that it's bringing me to a point of completeness, maturity, more and more to looking like Jesus. God's word does not fail us. And there will be nothing that we face ever as a church, as individuals, of which God has not spoken at least in principle that we can't trust with the full person of our being. This passage blows my mind. Hopefully it sinks, sinks in. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time together. That there is a justification by faith of which we respond to the gospel is instantaneous. But you desire to grow us. You desire to move us, to fashion us into the image of your son. And you give us opportunities time after time, day after day, to be responding to you according to what you've already said in your word. Thank you for the example of Abraham. He understood that your promise was so certain that death could not stop your word. I don't know what we're being faced with right now. I don't know what in life has got our attention and made us anxious. That has cultivated fear in our being. Or maybe we've made the mistake of being like lazy George. That we're just saved and in and it's all good now and dismissing the fact that you want to do great, great things through us. Lord, I pray that we would repent. We've been given every evidence of Scripture that you desire to work intimately with your children. We don't want to miss that. So help us, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.